Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Jumping back in to First Samuel, glad to have you guys here. Um, I asked my son this question. I would like to start with a little bit of a fun question to get going. This is probably the most serious one we've ever done, but you can keep it light if you want. You don't have to go deep and dark and serious and no need. I'm not looking to have anybody break out in tears first saying this evening, anything like that. Uh, but if you could, and again, it's probably the most like upfront question we've ever asked to start our night, and again, it's just kind of a get to know you. If you could take one day out of your life, it cannot be your wedding day, it cannot be the day you came to Christ, all right? It can't be any of those. No days like that. No days of when you got engaged. I'm just thinking one other day in your life that you could say is the most defining day for you. Most defining day for you. What would be your most defining day? Like this day, this is what happened, this is what it is. I will never forget it. Uh, for me, I could pick probably... Uh, a couple of different days for me. Um, one of those would be when I wiped out my stupid mountain bike and broke my neck. That was last September 28th. I will never forget that. Two broken vertebrae, defining day for me. So as I'm laying there on my back, that's a defining day. I won't forget that one. The other one is uh, uh, December when my, uh, my nephew passed away uh, and uh, we brought in his son to live with us. That moment, I had no idea how much that one moment in time would change everything. So pick one moment out of your life that's a defining day, all right? Go. Just a few minutes to get to know each other. (laughs) Get to know each other. Um, Love having you just chat a little bit. We'll do this every week. Just kind of get to know new people. Um, Like I said, my defining days, I've got got some that are funny, some that are serious. Uh, And I, I get a good friend, Chad Ragsdale, and I have a tendency to state things in extreme. I'm just part of what I do. Anybody else have that sickness where it's either great or horrible? Yeah, I do that occasionally. Uh, I'm going to say a definitive statement, and here we go. I'm going I'm to blast one out there. I think the chapter we're covering tonight, even though I don't know that I'm going to be able to do it justice, is the most definitive chapter in all the Old Testament. This chapter. This is it. There's no more, in my opinion, no more definitive chapter in the Old Testament than chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. And, uh, I mean, we could look at it like, okay, what about, you know, Genesis 1? I mean, come on, Genesis 1, you, you can't, that's the most definitive, God created the earth. Or you might look at when God gives the blessing to Abraham. You could make a case for a lot of different chapters. I'm going to make a case for this chapter. That this chapter is, is the turning point in the entire Old Testament. And from here, it is nothing but a runaway, you know, runaway car, runaway train going downhill. And it goes downhill as fast as it can go until you get to the moment at the book of John when it literally has a small phrase and it says they're on the way to Jerusalem. With Je- they're on the way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. Small little phrase in, in, that Mark writes. They're on the way to Jerusalem, up, up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. That this is a downhill sprint from this chapter all the way until we see Jesus on a cross. Until Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, the entire text of Scripture from, from 1 Samuel 8 just smokes it downhill. It goes down, 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 down. I mean, like, our, like I said, like an out-of-control car. And it doesn't climb until Jesus fixes his eyes on Calvary, fixes his eyes on, you know, on Jerusalem, and it says he's on his way up to Jerusalem, and he's leading the way. And this, this thing won't make a turn, because right now, this is the defining moment when they reject God. This is it. This is it. 
And this ushers in a whole new time, a whole new continuum for all of Scripture. Again, I like to overstate things, so there's, there's that. All right, let's do this. Um, I don't know if, uh, if you have been hurt in life. I didn't want to ask that question. I wondered, like, hey, tell me at your table what the most painful thing you've ever been in your life is. Um, I don't know if you've ever been, like, rejected before. Have you ever been rejected? Now, some of that might be a little like, yeah, this time in high school, or maybe fresh, like a marriage. I mean, there's all kinds of, maybe one of your own kids. Uh, maybe it was, was, I was dealing with a guy last week, and we went for a long walk because he just got told that he's going to be out of a job, and he is dealing with the pain of rejection. And so we're out in San Diego going for a long walk, and I'm looking at him. I'm saying, okay, bud, i got to shoot straight with you. You need to lean into this because a part of this is your fault. You know, you made decisions that put us where we are today, and, and you're going to lose. And his, he's living in another state where he's talking about it, where he's just like, man, i got a wife, and I don't know what's going to happen, man. I'm losing my job. I'm, I'm not going to have any place to work. And you know, how do I pay rent? How to do all this? And I said, well, first things first. I need you to lean into difficulty. Don't lean away from it. And you need to lean into this. You need to own it. You need to look at it. I don't know uh, if you've ever felt rejection. Man, I felt rejection. I can remember times junior high, high school, you know, you get the moment when he breaks up with you and you feel the sting of rejection. I don't know if you felt rejection before. I mean, to the point where it just flat hurt. Uh, I think it's Abraham Lincoln that's attributed uh, that whenever he lost the election where, uh, where he, where uh, was it Douglas that won the, uh, the uh, the vote, but he but but Lincoln had won. I think if I remember history, he had won the popular vote or something like that. And they asked him how he's feeling, and he says, "Well, I, I don't remember the quote precisely, but he says something on the lines of, well, I feel like I'm a little bit, you know, too big to cry now, uh, but it hurts a little too much to laugh.' You ever had that where you've got that sting, and uh, you know you don't want to break out in tears right now publicly, and you don't want to like collapse on the floor and start crying." Uh, but maybe you've had that sting in your life where this, this failure just bit me. And it bit me in the butt and I don't like it. And, uh, and we're going to see that moment. You're going to see what, what God goes through. You're going to see what Samuel goes through. It's a great text of, of dealing with rejection. And the fact that a God, even in this moment, is going to get rejected. And so let's just dive into this. Um, let's just start off with this question. Make it fun here. Anybody here ever get disillusioned with government? Wow, there you go. So do this at your tables. Nobody can hear you. It's not going to come out on the, on the podcast. If you listen to the podcast, you can come up with your own. If you are giving a, a blank check, and by, I don't mean literal money. I just mean the right to change one thing. Like you were given crown on your head, scepter in your hand. You had one thing you could change about government. You only get one, so you better think of it wisely. What's the one thing? You get one shot, one sentence. I do this. Say that at your table. One thing you change. You only get one. It's got to be real clear. What is it? Always oh, great to accuse politics in church, isn't it? It's great. Over to tonight. You got your one? Get your one? Okay. No? You only get one. Oh, you all agreed? Okay. All right. Out of curiosity, we're not getting into the, the political slant here, but it does apply to ordinance tonight. Uh, anybody have one without calling out a particular, you know, let's don't call a particular leader or any specific, you know, party. But let's stay in, in broad strokes here. So we don't, we don't, or we need to equally offend is what we really need to do right now. But if you can broad strokes say, I would change this, what would be your one thing? 
Yeah. Spend what you have. Spend what you have. Okay. All right. Anybody else have one? You change. They all have to be morally morally right people and have to believe in God. Okay. All right. Yeah. Size of the government. Size of the government. So we get a little bit of a trend here. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to like try to stir the pot here for politics, but it does apply. If you jump into First Samuel chapter seven, is where we're going to pick up right now, uh, and then we'll uh, we'll jump right into this text. Did you guys last week get into the whole, the ark gets taken? Jim took you through that? Did he talk about the tumors of the growing thing and all that? Did he get into that? Gosh, this is awesome. Not did like he talk about Not like I did? Oh, man. Did he talk about the Philistines actually fashioned golden tumors? It's just like, what in the world, man? It's just crazy. Like, God gave them tumors in their groin for taking the ark. I love that story. There needs to be a flannel graph with that for little kids. That's just the story that needs to be told. I mean, don't mess with God or you get tumors in the groin. It's just a great, great story. Uh, I'm disappointed that I didn't get a chance to teach on that. It's just awesome. And then I wonder, like, who's the artist at the end of chapter 7? Chapter 6, verse 17, it says, These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord. Who's the artist that gets... The artisan who now has to craft these gold tumors and like I just love scripture's awesome. It's just awesome. Where else do you find something like that? It just it's amazing. It's in there. It's great. All right, moving over. So Samuel basically, it's a beautiful thing, and, and we don't have time to get into all the details. But there's a couple of things I'm sure Jim hit hit on them, but there are a couple of things I didn't want to just blast by because I think they're really cool. And again, we're just here studying scripture. We'll find points of application. We're just going to dive into the text. A couple things that are I thought were interesting is, you know, they get the ark back, and it stays in Kirith-Jerim for like 20 years. The ark just stays there. Um, because I think they're all pretty much afraid of it. You know, some of the guys touched it, so they died. Other guys looked into it, they died. I mean, it's just, it's like, they, don't don't screw around with the ark, you're going to die. So it's like, let's just leave it in Kirith-Jerim. Just leave it there. That's a safe place. For 20 years it's there, then the Philistines come back out, and they're ready to go to war again. And when they come back out, it's interesting to me. I found this fascinating. Uh, I got to find the text. Um, Samuel basically tells them that man, you got to you got to fall before God, and, and you got to submit yourselves to Him. You know, is, is what he says in verse. Oh, I think it's like verse three or something like that. He tells, "Serve the Lord only." And then when they've got an oppressor coming against them, the, this is not what we're here to study tonight. But I thought, man, I always like finding Jesus. That Jesus thread that is pulled through all the Old Testament. It says, And Samuel took, verse 9, a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering for the Lord. And he cried out to the Lord on his behalf. And the Lord answered him. And then as this sacrifice is being made, you turn just a little bit further along. And as that sacrifice is made, the slaughtering ceases. And then Samuel takes a stone and he sets it up between Mizpah and Shen. And he named it Ebenezer. That's not the same Ebenezer named earlier. And Isaac and what's the name of the song Crowder sang a while back? Uh, yeah, Come Up Out. Great song. But here I raise my Ebenezer. And and from where my help comes. And he says, he said, he named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. And I love this parallel of when a lamb is offered up as a whole sacrifice. The complete lamb is offered up, holy, given over. And that appeases the wrath and stops the enemy in its tracks. And here you understand this parallel. Man, that's where my help comes. If that doesn't point you to the cross, look at Jesus right there. A whole lamb sacrificed. The enemy stopped in his track. 
thunder comes down. If you read the rest of that text, it talks about it. Where was that? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Where is it? Where it talks about thunder getting. Come on, where's it at? I know it's right here. It's, it's chapter 7, verse 10. Yeah, while Sam was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage the Israel battle. But that day the Lord thundered with a loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic they were routed for the Philistines. In my mind, I just picture the cross. I picture the landing sacrifice. You've heard the story of this, you know, this weather climatic thing that happens, the curtain being torn, you know, and here I raise my Ebenezer from where my help comes. And that moment when we see this happening back in, in the Old Testament... I automatically go, go to a day in Jerusalem where a whole lamb was sacrificed. His name was Jesus. And in that moment, you know, the clouds grow dark. And in that moment, the curtain is torn. And in that moment, through the cross, here he raises the cross being that Ebenezer. You know, the same way they set up a stone, you know, that, that was the Ebenezer cross was set up. And the same way they looked at a stone to remind them, we have a stone that's been rolled away that continually reminds us. And I love the imagery. Do you see it? Can you see the imagery pulling through between the, New, the Old Testament and the New Testament? I love it. All right, that's not what we're here to talk about. Let's get to what we're going to talk about. Um, and I'm sure Jim hit on all that, but sometimes I get little pieces of parts of it that are just fun for me. I, I can't leave it alone. Um, so throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. That's important. Throughout Samuel's lifetime. Okay, so basically from this point forward, there's going to be a whole lot of peace on the way. A whole lot of peace coming. This is the town from Ekron to Gath. The Philistines had captured, were restored to her, and Israel delivered neighboring territory from the power of the Philistines. Uh, there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Peace, peace, peace. From this moment, Ebenezer's up. Peace has come. Samuel is now reigning. He's a judge. You know, he's a judge. He's a prophet. He's reigning in Israel, and peace is prevailing. That will be important here in a second. It says, Samuel continued as judge over all of Israel all the days of his life. From year to year, he went up to the circuit, from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah. He's got about four circuits that he goes through, but he always went back to Ramah. He says where his home was. And, uh, and there he also judged Israel and built an altar there before, to the Lord. So you start getting this image of, of Samuel. He's kind of got this circuit that he's running. It's right around there in Benjamin. And, and that's kind of his circuit. where he's And he's, he's impacting all of Israel, but he's kind of got his base territory that he's working out of. Um, before we read on, don't read ahead in the text. I want to go back to where Samuel's life begins. Born Ramah, mom takes him, gives him over to Eli. Remember that? And then she comes every day, she builds him that nice little, you know, outfit, priestly outfit, a little priestly ephod that little Samuel puts on as he grows up. Mom keeps making a new one for him. And I love that imagery. Mom goes back, and eventually he leaves Shiloh and he starts going back home. He starts setting up his foundation now, you know, to be based out in Ramah. But if you remember something interesting, who did Samuel grow up watching? Eli. Eli. Yeah, and his sons. You said that as sons. What do you remember about Hophni and Phinehas? Okay, first of all, how many boys did Eli have? Two. Two. Their names were Hophni and Phinehas. What do you remember about those losers? Look like I preface it with, with, with what the real deal is. What do you remember about the big losers, Hophni and Phinehas? Anything you remember? Yeah, they took, they took sacrifices belonging to God and they got... Fat themselves, like Eli, fat Eli. Anything else you remember about him? Yeah, they're perverted. They're sleeping with girls right there at the temple. And so if you remember that, here these guys are as priests. They're the sons of a high priest. And man, they're, they're completely corrupt. And if you remember in, in Scripture, who got called out? Who got called out in, in 1 Samuel for those boys? Remember who got called out? Now, Eli, Eli got called out. 
Maybe they're like, you know, Eli didn't, he didn't discipline his boys. Eli didn't take care of that. He didn't nip this thing in the bud. He knew what was going on. He didn't stop it. Now watch this. You're young Samuel. You're watching Eli. Eli's got two boys that are complete losers. You, you know, everybody knows. All In fact, the scripture says all of Israel knew what these boys were doing. All of Israel knew that these boys were a train work. And all of Israel looked at Eli going, come on, man, get control of your boys. Now here you are, Samuel. You've been ruling now for I don't know how long, long time. By this time, he's probably 60-some years old. We'll say he's 65, ballpark. He's 60, 65 years old. He's been ruling Israel. And then you turn to chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his son as judges for Israel. That had never really happened other than Gideon. And when Gideon, if you were with us in Judges, I was gone that week. When Gideon did that with his son Abimelech, it was a train wreck, man. Train wreck. This is not a biblical precedent, what Samuel does here. It, it, God had, had been the one who appointed judges. And why Samuel's doing this, I don't know. I'm not going to say it's right. I think Samuel makes a mistake here. He goes on, he says, He appointed the son as judge for Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second was Abijah. Um, we'll talk about those names here in a second. Oh, um, yeah, we're going to get into that right now. It says, uh, They served at Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Who does that sound like? Man. Like, what in the world? What in the world? Samuel, you grew up in a system watching a leader with kids out of control. And now here you are, a leader with kids out of control. Like, are you, are you freaking kidding me, Samuel? What in the world, man? What kind of leader are you? I want to give grace to Samuel because I want to point out what it does say about Eli with what it doesn't say about Samuel. Now keep in mind, Samuel doesn't write this book. He couldn't have written, he couldn't have written, this, couldn't have written the book by chapter 12. The guy's almost dead. Okay, and We have 1st and 2nd Samuel being written. So let's give some credence to the author for a second. And instead of him just trying to play favorites, because he's automatically going to put in that Samuel's sons are corrupt. So he's, he's stating the obvious. I want, to point out what it, I want to point out a bit of a contrast between Samuel and Eli. Um, let's start off talking about the people just a little bit. Um, we have had moments in our society where we have rejected government. I uh, had a chance to go to Northern Ireland, and man, the, the troubles over there are intense. When you understand what, what happens between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. You know, just this intense, bitter struggle uh, between, you know, what you call Great Britain and, you know, what you would have the Republic of Ireland wanting to be its own nation. And it's fascinating to me when I hear them talk about it. For me, growing up in the 80s, you know, I'm sitting there watching everything from U2's coming on from Michael Jackson's exploding. Uh, you know, we've got Boy George out singing songs and all kinds of great music from the 80s. But I do remember those few times when they started, like, Show, they put TVs in our classrooms, and they would start showing us, like, news footage. Uh, so that started happening just a little bit in this one class I had. And I remember it was, like, 1986, 1987, and I will never forget sitting there watching, you know, these guys with masks on firing guns down the streets of Belfast. Some of you guys will remember that. Some of you won't. You know, for me growing up, that was about, like, watch, watching what's going on, you know, in Jerusalem right now between Palestinians and Israelis. But I grew up watching that, just machine gun fire and, 
you know, singing, you know, Sunday Bloody Sunday and understanding the concept of that song and all the tension. And out of that, you know, you understand when governments have tension with one another. It happens here. I love getting into fun dialogue with, uh, with people in Northern Ireland because I'm like, okay, so you're English? And, and I've got a good friend, uh, and I'll say, so you're English, right? He's like, do you want to punch in the mouth? No, I'm not English. I'm British. There's a difference. You better figure it out. It's like, well, we kicked the queen out of our country. You should try that sometime. Worked out pretty well. And it's just fun banter that I've got with these guys. And they are dear, dear friends, so you got to keep in mind. They're, they're very, very, very good friends. And they're laughing and just making fun of me. But it's interesting how, how we, even in our own country, can revolt when we don't like government. Uh, regardless of, of, of where your ideologies lie, you can look at even subsets of different parties, and they're, they're seen as even an internal revolt against government. That, you know, whether you want to go all the way back to when we celebrate a great tea party in Boston to overthrow taxation without representation. It's not a new thing for us and our culture to understand what it's like to say, our government stinks and I don't like it. You ever felt that way? I mean, I think we've all felt that way at times. My, our government stinks and I don't like it. Regardless of what side you're on, you can say that whether you're a Democrat, Republican, Independent, Tea Party, whatever you are, there's some moment where you can say, our government stinks and I don't like it, and everyone would have an axe to grind. What you're going to find right now is this is about to be the overthrow of government. What's about to happen, the reason why I say it's the most definitive chapter in Scripture, is this is the moment when they say no to theocracy, which is God-centered, God-led government. And they say, we want monarchy, okay? We want to be led by, by a monarch at the head, by a king at the head. And this is the moment where they're going to reject God as king. This is an overthrow of God's kingdom. Okay? You've got to look at it in that light. God says, I will be your king, I will be your leader. You know, he, he's led them by pillars of fire, pillars of cloud. He's sent plagues throughout Egypt. He's gave them manna. He's gave them quail. He's parted seas. He's parted, you know, rivers. He's done all this stuff for them. And they reach this point in Scripture and they say, you know, we want a monarch. We don't want a, we don't want a theocracy no more. And the reason why I say it, it's the most definitive chapter of Scripture is this is the moment where they reject God. We don't want you anymore. We don't want you as our head anymore. That's a big moment in Scripture. So... Let's talk a little about who these people are that are rejecting God. They're a new generation. Um, it's interesting. Generations change. And sometimes a generation that's gone through struggle uh, will have a different perspective on life. You know, if you could have talked to my grandparents, understanding and talk about, you know, the depression. It's like, what? I can't even wrap my head around it. Like, I try to, and I'll say, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I think I understand. I don't understand, but I want to. I, I want to understand. It's, it, it, for me, it's like trying to explain to my kids, like, what the TSA is. Like, you used to be able to just walk down to the planes like everybody? Like, yeah. You didn't have to take your shoes off either. Like, I could leave my belt on. It was awesome. Like, wow. Like, I, they can't wrap their mind around that. Like, for us in this room... You can, you can literally remember the day you didn't have a cell phone. Probably everybody in the room can remember when you didn't have a cell phone. You understand that not one kid that currently is over the SMC or in this building can, can fathom a, a world where there wasn't a cell phone. What? Like, they, they don't understand. Can you remember your first phone when you got it? And you got a phone number? It was a big deal? Bag phone. You got a bag phone? You got a bag phone? <laughs> I was an only child. I was going to say, I, I wasn't pegging it that way. I was pegging like, you look younger than that. I did not pay you for having a bag phone. So, yeah. All right. You can remember, like, even a flip phone. You know, it's kind of like, oh, wow. Kids see those, like, 
If you were to walk a kid up and put them in front of a typewriter, they would not know what to do with it. If you handed a kid a sheet of paper and a typewriter, they'd look at you like, they would not put it in. If they pressed the return button and it went, they'd probably jump out of their seats like, what in the world? What is this? The point I'm making is, is that generations change. Generations change. But when a generation has not known hardship, when a generation really hasn't seen the great things that God has done, because what you find is that moment I said earlier, throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord is against the Philistines. We're talking a generation is, is gone here. Generations moved through. And you've got a new generation coming up. And, and they don't worry, like, what's that big rock over there? It's kind of like in a few years, like, we walk down through some of the national monuments in our own nation, and we see it like, oh, wow, that's really pretty. But it never captivates what it really meant for the people who were there. You know what I mean? Like, when you, when you see a Korean monument, or when you walk through and you, know, you see the Vietnam you know, Wall, if you were there and you lived through it, it carries a different symbolism, a different meaning, a different weight in your heart. Whereas for us, we want to get it, we want to understand, and honestly, it'll be that way sometime. People are going to see these big towers in New York City and not really know what they're all about. Like, what? that just seems like a long time ago. Like, what are, what's up with the towers? Like, should we tear those down and, like, build something here? Like, so we make money and, like, get taxed? At some point, this, this, it's the cycle we go through. People forget. And in this text, they've lived a lifetime in peace, and they've not really needed God in their mind. I really needed him. Like, I mean, we got Samuel, and he rides around to the four cities and tells us what to do. But what we really want is like, we want to be like the rest of the other nations. Do that here in a second. So you get a new generation. They've lived in a lot of peace and safety. safety. Um, they've lived in theocracy without ever really recognizing where their benefits come from. Man, if that will preach to government, I don't know what will. But they've lived in a place where they've gotten lots but not really knowing where that lots of stuff came from. It just showed up. Like, wow, this is great. And then never really give credence or credit to God. So Samuel's about 65 years old. If you look, his boys are alive right here. The reason I get to 65, look at chapter 12, verse 2. It makes this comment in passing. It says, uh, uh, Now you are the king as your leader. As for me, I'm old and gray, and my sons are here with you. So his boys are still alive. So the time from really 8 until we get to 12 is a pretty condensed time. It happens pretty quickly. Sam is probably in his 60s. I think he's probably 65 years old, but i got nothing to base on other than just opinion. Um, I, think, I think Samuel hoped his sons would be good judges. Huh? That's not old, yeah. I think Samuel, Samuel hoped his sons would be good judges. Uh, I don't know what your aspirations are if you've got children. I know I've got aspirations for my kids. Uh, I can tell you in the French household there is a prayer that I stumbled upon when, uh, when Justin was about six months old. And I remember going in, I can tell you what happened that night. I can tell you the moment that I prayed the prayer, and as soon as it rolled out of my mouth, I just said, that's, that's a prayer for my kids' life. I will pray that prayer every day of their lives. And uh, we were in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I walked back in just to sit down and pray with him. He was just a little bitty, a little bitty rug threw him up in his bed, body slammed him in there, tickle time, mess with him, mess, you know, you know it's kind of, and I kind of got down, and, and I, you know, get in his ear and just tell him how much I loved him. I said, okay, buddy, just kind of lay still. He's six months old. He's all over the map. You know, he's not understanding the path of what I'm trying to communicate in my prayer. But I just started praying over him. And, uh, and I said, you know, just tell him, hey, Dad loves you. And as I went through this prayer, Jesus, I want you to pray that you be adjusting God. I pray that he, you know, follow you, Jesus. And then my, my prayer ended with, God, I just pray that he would walk with you all the days of his life. And as soon as I said that, I was like, that, that's a prayer for my kids. It's a prayer I'm going to pray for them until the day they die. That God, they would walk with you all the days of their life. 
regardless whether they're happy, regardless whether they're wealthy, regardless whether they're famous, regardless of anything else. And if I figure if I can get a kid to walk with Jesus all the days of his life, that, that pretty much nails it. I'm, I'm, I'm good to go. Um, but I look at it, I think Samuel wanted his boys to be good boys. I don't think he wanted Huffman eyes. I think he wanted boys that would walk, walk with God like he had walked with God. Unfortunately, that's not what happens. Um, you know, they're taking bribes. Uh, they're unraveling any sort of, of justice. You know, you look at what it says about them. It says they turned aside after dishonor gain. They accepted bribes and they perverted justice. Whew. What a scathing review of your children. What a scathing review, man. Imagine being Samuel like, ah, yuck. I wonder, like, Samuel, why? Why? I mean, he, it says in verse 1, he appointed his boys as, as judges. Did he not know? Was he, like, incompetent as a leader that he would just let nepotism take over? I don't know, man. But like, Samuel, why? Why'd you put your boys up there if you know they're a train wreck? Um, you know, Eli's boys, we would say that uh, Proverbs are called lust of the flesh. And we'll look at that in two dimensions. One, they got they were fat and happy eating, eating God's food. And they were taking God's sacrifices and feeding their own bodies. Again, lust of the flesh, sex, man. These guys are driven by sex. It's, it's, it's what they're passionate about. These boys, uh, they, uh, they're what, uh, is it uh, Ephesians? So where is it? Where Paul talks about being lovers of money. Where's that at? I can't think where it's at. Uh, I don't remember. We'll think of it later. These guys are lovers of money. And, uh, and man, they are, you know, you look at it, in our, in our society, we would be what Paul talks about, greed being idolatry. Their idol is, is money for them. And, uh, and, and they're willing to pervert justice and take bribes no matter what. Do you think it's because there's no one better? I mean, it seems like... Samuel's still alive, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's the best he had. Oh, wow, that's a sad... That's, I love that insight. That's a tough, the, yeah, that's, that's a sad thing with it if you think that might be the best you've got. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's a, that'd be a, a scary thing. And what we'll do is it'll cause all of Israel to revolt. Um, so what we know, let's look at the difference, um, the difference between Eli and Samuel just a little bit as parents, because uh, I think it's, I think it's important. Um, how many wrong turns does it take to go the wrong direction? One. Okay. Um, if you are dry, flying a plane or you're going on a hike, whatever it is, you know, you, you think about if I want to get from here, if I want to take a flight and I want to get from here to L.A. and my course is off by one degree from the moment I leave, what is the impact? <laughs> it is exponential. It, it, it's huge. And I think what you're finding here is you're going to find parenting off by one degree or two degrees or 90 degrees or 180 degrees. Um, let's talk about the difference between, uh, between the, the fathering and parenting between Samuel and Eli. Um, Eli is flat out judged for being a bad dad. He is. He is judged outright for being a bad father. Uh, the scripture is really clear. Now again, let's be careful here. Samuel's not writing this book. Samuel's boys have already been thrown under the bus. Whenever the author wrote about Eli's boys, he blamed Eli. Let's let that sit and own it for what it is. Okay, I love reading stories within stories and really pulling apart the text. But let's make sure we don't read something in the Samuel story that's not there. In Samuel's story, Samuel's never blamed for his boys. Eli is, Samuel is not. Um, 
I think it is possible for kids to just go their own way. You ever know parents that were genuinely good parents that ended up with kids that were just a mess? It happens, doesn't it? Man, it does. I've also known parents that were an absolute train wreck and they ended up with kids who were awesome. And so as much as we want to say it's all about parenting, um, there, is, there is a point where that's not always true. Uh, let's talk about the difference between a principle and a promise. You know, um, what, when I think say that, what, what do they think the difference is between a principle and a promise? What comes to mind? What do you think of? Principle and a promise. principle of a guideline, a promise would be a guarantee. So when we say, train up a child in the ways you go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. Is that a principle or a promise? It'd be more of a principle. And I think what you're looking at is, sometimes we look at it and say, God, look what, I did everything. I prayed for my kids. I did this, I did this, I did this, and my kids are still the train wreck. I think you get to realize, the principle is, train up a child in the ways you go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. The guarantee would be, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That would be a promise. And I think in this moment, I, I want to say, sometimes it is a parent's fault, sometimes it's not. And we, as people, can be very quick to judge. Especially where I'm at in life, I work with teenagers all the time. And man, I know at times, I hear stories of what kids are going on, and then uh, I'll work with some people like, man, their parents must be a mess. And I'm like, no, actually, their parents are really pretty good. The kid's actually just a mess. Like, mom and dad love them deeply. They meet their needs. They, they want good kids. But the kid is actually just, just an outright mess. And that happens. And I think we need to be careful. There are times when you can look at Eli and you can look at a parent and go, your parenting is really bad and it's impacting your children. And you know your kids are doing things and you're tolerating it. All right? You know that's happening. We don't see that with Samuel. Um... I'd say just be very slow to judge people's children. Just be slow. Um, be slow to judge other people's kids. And be quick to look at your own heart and your own parenting. Um, and just, just be careful there. Because I think in this case, and, and I'm probably preaching to my own generation because I'm right there. I've got one that's 19, I've got one that's 5, and a whole spectrum in between. And I see a lot of kids doing a lot of dumb things. And the older I get, the more I'm able to step back and go, you know what, I probably need to take a little bit deeper look. And before I just assume that the parents don't know what's going on or they don't care or they're clueless or the home life's a wreck, I might need to step back for a second and realize it might just be the kid. And the kid might just be making some really, really bad decisions. So, moving on. Um, you know, you can give your kids good names, but it doesn't guarantee good behavior. You know, all of my kids are named for very specific things. You know, Justin is named Samuel because I wanted his heart to be that you know, the voice, you know, to be a boy that listens for the, for the voice of God. That's what I wanted. I wanted a son because I talk too much. I talk too fast. I'm always going 100 miles an hour. I said, God, give me a boy that's different than me. I want a boy that's slow. A boy that just takes his time. I want a boy that's, that measures his words carefully. This is Justin, isn't it? Isaac knows him. I want a boy that measures his words carefully. I want a boy that, that's more interested in listening to others than to hearing, him, hearing himself speak. I want a boy like that. And so I said, God, I'm going to give him the name Samuel. And I, and I pray that over him. Levi, I named him. I said, man, God, I want a boy that's passionate for your kingdom. I want a boy that literally, uh, 
and he's named after that moment when, the, when Moses comes down from the mountain and all the Israelites have worshipped this golden calf. And Moses says, whoever, whoever shall the Lord rally to me. And that day, you know, the Levites strapped a sword to their side and just went crazy, just killing anyone that was, that was making a laughing stock out of God's name. And that's what I got Levi. I mean, that boy, strap sword aside, let's go. He'll fight you. You know, and so names matter. I believe that. I believe they can be self-fulfilling prophecies. But, but it's no guarantee of behavior. Because these boys, if you look at their names, um, you know, uh, uh, Abijah means Jehovah is my father, and Joel means Jehovah is my God. Or Jehovah is God. Um, you know, we know that kids are going to screw up, but don't always blame on parents. Let's get going a little deeper. Okay, <clears throat> I want to talk about, uh, let's get down to about verse 5. Let's get forward. We're going to get in this, this pickup speed. So all the elder of Israel gathered together. They came to Samar Ramah, and they said to him, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as the other nations have. Um, the concept of having a king is something that we knew was coming. Uh, in fact, in your groups, I need you guys to read uh, a couple of scriptures. Somebody at your table, take Genesis 35, 11. Somebody got that at your table? I need somebody else to take Deuteronomy. Who's got Genesis? Somebody call it out and say, I got it. All right, somebody take Deuteronomy. Who's got this one? Somebody call it. Deuteronomy 17, 14, and 15. Go ahead and read those out loud at your table. We'll make a turn from parenting and get into the meat of excuse me, get into the meat of this text now. You got them? Finishing up, you got them. Okay, who's speaking in both the text? God's speaking. Okay, so God's speaking. And there's there's something that's implied here. That at some point they're going to have what? A king. A king. So that, that's been implied. They've known for generations that there's going to be a king in Israel. So what's wrong with asking for a king? If God's already told them they're going to have it, what's, what's the problem? We're going to get into it more of a rhetorical question. What's the problem with the fact they're finally asking for it? They've known for generations it was coming. God told them they're going to have a king. He's already given kind of an outline of the way it's going to work. You know, he's, he's laid it out for them. So what's the big deal with asking for a king? Why is this such a, a negative thing that's happening right now? They say, um, when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. All right. Um, the issue is the fact that God said he was going to give him a king. Okay, what are they doing? Asking for one. Feel the tension. And I know this in my own life. There have been times in my life if I would just slow down and shut up and trust God to provide instead of trying to make things happen. Some of the biggest messes I create is when I try to get out ahead of God. And I make decisions like as if God's not going to provide 
And so, you know what, Lord? I've had times in my life, I told you when I paid the stupid tax, by spending money I did not have for things I did not need. Okay? And we've, other than our mortgage, we're debt-free right now. But, but you've ever had that moment where you paid stupid tax instead of trusting God to supply your needs? All of a sudden you think, you know what? I want this, and I want it right now, and I need this right now. And so the next thing you know, you pulled out a Discover card, and you find yourself signing you know, a piece of paper that, that puts you in a deep, dark place for a very long time. And maybe some of you guys at some point have paid the stupid tax. Well, you've just gotten ahead of yourselves. You've gotten ahead of God. You've taken things into your control, and now you find yourself in a place you don't want to be. And I can remember that day. Like, good night. By the time I take the minivan I shouldn't have bought, I, I bought it. And I told you this in judgment. I bought a stupid motorhome. I don't need a motorhome. There's nothing wrong with having a motorhome. If you've got one, that's great. I don't need one. I just don't. I had it. I think we took it out like in two or three years. We may have used it twice. No joke. Like, this was so stupid impulsive. Like, idiotic impulsive. Didn't need it, but I wanted it. I want it right now. Like, I feel like I should have this. Everybody else got a motorhome, and also look around. It felt like everybody else has a motorhome. I need a motorhome. I gotta have one. I gotta have it right now. How stupid could I be? I didn't need one. I couldn't afford one, but I bought one. Same thing for a stupid minivan. I remember I went out and I bought a brand new because we had kid coming. My wife's car isn't good enough, and instead of taking my time, I got, I need this. And so I walked out and I signed a piece of paper for thirty thousand dollars for a stupid van. But when I got rid of it, it was worth like three, $4,000. I'm like, this is stupid. This is irritating. But I wanted it. I need it. Everybody else has got a new minivan. I need a new minivan. Some level, this is what's going to happen. Oh, we want a king. Everybody else has got a king. We need a king. They've got a king. We want a king. Everybody else has got one. Why can't we have one? Well, God's going to say, like, yeah, I'm going to get you a king, man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you everything you need. But it's the right time. This is not the right time. It's just not the right time. And I think it's sometimes we get so impulsive, we, I, let's turn this on me and not turn it on you. I get so impulsive with the things that I want, I can get demanding. Sometimes one of the worst things that happens to me in life is when God gives me what I want. Whew. Man, it's one of the worst prayers that, that, that ever get answered in my life is when I pray enough for something that God says, okay, you've asked me a hundred times. You really want this. I've told you no a hundred times. But now you come to me the 101st time and you're still asking for it. You sure you want that? You want me to give that to you? All right, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. And then it literally becomes a noose around my neck. And one of those dangerous things we can, we can see happen in our lives is when we actually have God give us what we want instead of what he wants for us. And that's exactly what happens here. God finally says, you want a king? Okay. All right. Um, let's talk first of all about Samuel. Before we get into rejecting God, let's talk about Samuel. Imagine you're Samuel. Let's, let's do get into the soap opera part of this text. Think about it. If you're Samuel, here you are. You're 65 years old. You've been busting your tail. You've, you've kept the Philistines at bay. You've got good relationships with the Amorites. Everybody's living in peace. From what we know in the text, everything's fine in Israel. There's no drama right now. There's no threat of war. For 65 years old, you've been leading this nation since you were a little boy. You've risen up, and here you are, you're you know, kicking tail, taking names, you're leading. Yeah, you got a couple boys that are jacked up, but you're doing a pretty good job. And yeah, you're getting old, but it's not like he's unable to lead. I mean, yeah, you're 65 years old, and that day, that would have been a much older old than you know, what we perceive as old today. I mean, 65 at this point would have been a lot tougher. You're looking at it and you're going, man, you know, Samuel's walking everywhere he goes, he's 
you know, leading all of Israel and doing a good job at it. I wonder what it felt like to not be wanted. I know that day's coming for me. I know it's coming for me. And I don't know, I don't know what to do with that day. Some of you all faced that day where I was talking to my father-in-law. And I remember when he retired, how much that broke his heart. Like it was just, yeah, he wanted to do it. But the identity lost for him was tough. You know, even watching my own dad as he's retired, he still remains incredibly busy. There's one thing when you take retirement on your terms, it's another one when you take it at the terms of someone else. And I wonder what it meant for Samuel to listen to these people and go, whoa, 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 what? You want a king? I've been leading you now for, you know, the last 40 plus years? Like, you want a king? Are you kidding me? I've been busting my tail for you all. You're, re- you're rejecting me? I brought you peace. I stopped the Philistines. I built peace with the Amorites. I'm 65 years old. I'm not done yet. And you're coming to me telling me you're done with me? Because they're not what they're saying. Because at that point, Samuel is their judge. Can you imagine the sting of rejection for Samuel? Have you ever felt rejection? This has got to hurt for him. This can't be something... This is a forced retirement. And it's not even a buyout, for crying out loud. <laughs> I mean, it's not even like, hey, we've got the, you know, the golden parachute for you, Samuel. Here's what we're going to do for you, man, on your way out. No. It's like, hey, bud, we want a king. Samuel's like, what? I'm, I'm the ruler of Israel. Like, God's appointed me to be ruler of Israel. And I know I'm using my boys, and I know making mistakes, but... But God pointed me to, yeah, 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 we know that, but we don't want you anymore. We want a king. How do we react when we get rejected? Now, whether you're rejected in business, whether you get rejected in a marriage, whether you get rejected by a friend, we all at some level face rejection. We all at some level tell, you're either not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not fast enough, you're not this, whatever it is, at some point, Someone comes to you in life and you just don't have it. The it they need to move forward. Um, maybe it's your talents aren't as good as somebody else's talents. And so in that moment, it's like, oh, hey, wait, man, I was, I was the guy at one point in time. Now, now I'm not the guy? Really? Like, you want another guy to replace me? I thought, I thought you all trusted me to be the leader at some point, and now you don't? Or, wait a second, I, I've been... Like, I've been your best customer, or you've been my best customer. Like, I've done things for you that I wouldn't do for anyone else. Like, I've busted my tail to get deadlines for you, to meet things for you, to provide for you. Or, wait a second here. I, I spent how many hours for this company burning the midnight oil? You know, Samuel's looking at going, I walked how many miles? Like, that problem with Beersheba, I took care of that. All the things that are not even listed in Scripture, all the late nights, all the trips back and forth to Ramah to solve all your problems. How many hours have I invested? Taking... Hey, can't you hear it right now? How many hours have I invested for this company? For him, it's a nation. How many hours have I invested in this relationship? You know, I was there, you know, and so-and-so did wrong to you, and I'm the one that came in and fixed it, and now you want to get rid of me? How do you deal with rejection? I want to talk about how Samuel does it. And let's talk about his response. It says... This displeased Samuel. That's an understatement, folks. It's an understatement. This displeased Samuel. Have you ever been displeased? Man, I cannot believe you're doing this to me. I cannot believe this is happening. I've been faithful to you. 
I've been good to you, and you're leaving? Are you kidding me? Like in that moment, my nature goes to a dark place. Like, can I punch you and get away with it? <laughs> like, all right, can I cuss you out and no one will know about it? Or can I tell you what I really think? Can I argue with you? Can I fight with you? Can I yell at you? Can I show my utter displeasure with you right now? Like, I'm so ticked off at you right now, I can't even see straight. I don't know if you've ever been rejected. But in this moment, what does Samuel do? Verse 6, it says, when they said, give us a king to lead us, that basically says, uh, you're done. We don't want you anymore, Samuel. This displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. He didn't argue with him and then go pray. That's what I would have done. I'd have, I'd have tried to defend myself. I'd have jumped right at, wait, wait, you don't understand, man. What about this? What about this? And I'd have tried to negotiate. I would have tried to hold on to power in that moment, hold on to whatever I could get my hands on. No, wait, wait, wait. Is this decision been made? I mean, can we still talk about this? Is there time? And then I become a great negotiator. Well, maybe we can work this out. I mean, come on. We're, we're not there yet, are we? I mean, can we work this out? Can we at least have a conversation? I mean, you, oh, come on. Give me one, one, one more chance here to talk this through. You'll see that, Samuel. He shuts his mouth. The boy that hears the Lord, he just shuts his mouth. He prays. He doesn't argue. He prays. He lays this whole thing at the very feet of the one who chose him. I think we can learn the same thing. If we understand that we are adopted into the very throne of God, heirs, joint heirs of Christ, then when we are offended, no matter how grievous, how great, how painful it is, if we could get to the, the first thing we do is entrust it to the one who appointed us, being Jesus. Man, that's one of the hardest things to do is to shut our mouths and take it to the Father. I don't know how many times I've been in a situation, whether it be a negotiation or trying to work a deal out, that if you ever walked away and you've said things like, man, I wish I wouldn't have said that. I wish I wouldn't have offered that. I wish I wouldn't have gone there. I wish I, and sometimes it, it even goes to the point where you give away too much. Like in desperation, you'll give away the farm. And you're like, ah, oh, man, if I would have just backed off for a second and I would just would have calmed down and spent some time praying to Jesus, I could have got a much more rational response. Right? <clears throat> this is what Samuel does. He prays. Um, and I think he just gives the problem to God. Let's keep reading. He says, I prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. I love the fact that he can discuss the reason why God leads with that statement. Let's just be implied here. Okay, let's, let's take a moment to get a little deeper in the text and play here for a second. Look at God's response. Hopefully you can get where my mind's going. Samuel prays. Look at God's response. Listen to all the people are saying to you. It's not you've rejected, they rejected me as their king. Tell me from that, from that response, tell me about Samuel's prayer. What's Samuel's prayer? I think he's interceding for the people of Israel. And, yeah. and you know, as you're saying that, I'm, I'm thinking, he's not mad at all. He's, he's upset because he knows God's not going to accept their, their request very willingly, and there, there's going to be consequences. And so he begins to intercede for them, and then, you know, God said, hey, 
it's not you, it's me. <laughs> anybody ever heard that phrase before? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anybody else got a, got a similar vein or maybe a different angle on it? You may see something different. Maybe asking God where he went wrong. Mm. Why? Yeah. What did I do? Mm. Anybody else? It's great insight. We're all going to see this a little different. That's great. Anybody else get an insight? Like, man, I see this and that. And God's response, I, I almost wonder if Samuel was praying this. Okay, ask wisdom what to say to change their minds. Why did they reject him? Why did they reject him? Yeah. He's hurt. Hurt. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of perspectives as we read this. But I think we can look at it and say there's probably grains and elements of truth in all of it. It's his brokenness saying, God, they're, they're rejecting the theocracy. Do they even understand that they're rejecting you? It may be him saying, you know, crying out to God like David does in the Psalms. My enemies are overtaking me. You know, God, I'm hurt. God, this is painful. And I think at some point, in the same way, do you remember the last time that he heard God's voice? Sam, Sam, calling his voice. I think in this moment he hears Samuel's, Sam hears the Lord's voice again. And he says, hey, listen to all the people are saying to you. It's not you they rejected, but they rejected me as their king. Painful. 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 Um, Which is totally different than what God's told them to be. In Deuteronomy, when God sets them up, He says they're supposed to be a light to the nations. You know, and that, that gets into this whole, you guys understand the difference between, a, you know, we all know this, the, the thermometer versus the thermostat? You know the difference between those two? Of course you do. Basic difference is what? Thermometer does what? Okay, thermostat? Sets it. Okay, very different entities in terms of what they do. Okay? And in this moment, they were supposed to be thermostats, and now they want to just be light. They want to be a reflection. We just want to blend in here. You know, they're supposed to be a light to the nations. And now we're, we're not want to be like the nations. We just want to be like all the other nations. We just want to kind of blend in here. And so they're asking to be the very thing that God told them not to be. He said they ought to be. Yeah, moving on. So he goes through. <clears throat> I think um, in prayer, we find that moment to discuss and be authentic with God. You know, we, we talked about Hannah's prayer a little bit. And now, man, sometimes the best prayers are the prayers of desperation. That's why I told you guys I hate journaling. I stink at it. I know if you're great at journaling, man, bless you. I wish I, I genuinely wish I could be more like you. When I journal, I start paying attention to my writing. I'm like, well, that was eloquent. That was wonderful. My best prayers when I fall flat on my face before God and someone's in agony and crying out to Him. And I think in, in some moments where that desperation is pleading God, they don't understand what they're losing, or God pleading, you don't understand God how much they're hurting me. There's a desperate nature to this prayer. So let's look at what he prays. Um, moving on, let's get down to verse 7. We've got to work our way down there. It says, The Lord said, Listen to all the people are saying to you. It's not you that rejected, uh, but they've rejected me as their king. I think God encouraged Samuel with that dose of reality. And, uh, and that's a beautiful thing that he does. Uh, and I think this new perspective, it, it, it softens the blow for Samuel just a little bit. He's like, okay, if I'm going to believe that's true, I think it softens it and makes it a little bit easier for him. You know, in uh, verse 9 baffles me. Let's keep going on. It says, They've done from the day I brought them out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're doing to you. Now listen to them. Ha! Huh. He says, But warn them solemnly and uh, let them know uh, what the king who will reign over them will do. Now understand, what the king who will reign over them, a very specific king, okay? They're about 10 years too early. I think David... 
was going to be the king that God had in plan. David was going to lead the Messiah. Instead of waiting just a little bit longer on God's plan to reveal, Samuel would have been the last judge. David's coming. Don't cash in your chips now. You want to do this. Okay. You want to establish a king in your own right. The, the whole concept of kingship is, going to now be, is now going to be tainted. It's going to be tainted even for David. Everything's going to be tainted from this point on because you've hijacked it. You've taken it out of my hands. you put it in your hands. Now let me tell you what's going to happen. And man, if this does not sound like, if you like talking about big government, buckle up. This is awesome. Samuel told him all the words of the Lord of the people who were asking for a king. He said, this is what the king will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. All right. What does that sound like? Military. Okay. It says, um, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some will assign to be commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, and others will plow his ground and reap his harvest. And still others will make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive oils and groves, olive groves, and he will give them to his tenants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage, and will give it to his officials and attendants. Uh, your men servants and maid servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen and the Lord will, uh, will not answer you in that day. What's the reoccurring word? Take. Good night. Take. 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 Let's contrast that with the king that we serve. Jesus. What does Jesus take? Our sin. What does Jesus give? Life. I think all along he's saying, don't, don't hijack kingship. Kingship's going to be important. Kingship's a part of the story. Don't hijack this. You, you do this, you're going you're gonna to steal a king that takes. You're going to steal the whole mindset of a king that, that just wants and wants and wants. I've got a better kingship established. It's going to come through David. It's going to point toward Jesus. And it's been a king who, who lays down his life. It's not a king. The only thing he'll take is your sin. He'll take your burden. It's a whole different kind of kingship. Instead of taking your maidservants and everything you've got for his own gain, man, Jesus says it's more blessed to give than receive. Jesus is the one who shows up and, and says, my, you know, my burden is easy, my yoke is light. Jesus is the one who who shows up and says, the Son of Man didn't come to what? Anybody know how that finishes? To be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What God's saying is, you're completely hijacking the whole concept of king. And God says, it's going to take generations for me to unravel the destruction you're, you're sowing right now. I've got Jesus coming, don't you understand? Like The concept of kingship is going to be huge. Israel have a king unlike any other king. Israel have a king that gives. Israel have a king that provides. Not a king that hoards. Not a king that takes. Not a king that demands all of the best. And they're going to hijack it. And this is why I think this is one of the most defining moments in Scripture. Is they hijack the theocracy. And they turn it towards themselves. And it plummets them into disgrace. Moving on. Six different times it talks about what, what he's going to take. Um, we're going to do a little bit more. We'll finish up to, to chapter 9. It says, but the people refused. Okay, there's a tension between verse 5 and 19. Okay, verse 5, what you find is this. It says, they said, you're old, your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have had. 
if you, if you feel in that, what does it feel like? It's got a little bit of feeling like, hey man, go ahead and appoint a king for us. Okay, if you, if you heard somebody who said appoint a king, doesn't that kind of imply that, well, maybe there's still there's going to be a little bit of time. I don't know. But what Samuel says, I'm going to do it, man. This way it's going to roll. We're going to take everything you got. Watch verse 19 because it shifts hard. Verse 19 is a, is a, is it flips on Samuel. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. Can you feel the tone of the discussion shift right now? Like, have you ever had a moment where you're trying to have an honest conversation with somebody and it starts off and it's, and it's like, like amiable, we're kind of working through this, we're having a good discussion, things are going okay, and then all of a sudden they're not getting what they want and then it starts turning into this demand mode where they're just demanding from you? No, you're going to do this. And the moment somebody starts off with this, you're going to do this stuff, I know in my nature, I'm like, <laughs> you think I'm going to do what? Whoa, 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 this just took a turn right now. Like, we're no longer having a healthy conversation. You're now demanding this of me. I don't do sometimes as well as I could as a godly leader with demands. Let's just admit that up publicly. And I can tell you right now, Samuel handles this a lot better than I do. He gets a demand. He says, we want a king over us, and then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out, go out before us and to fight our battles. Ah, good night, folks. Let's camp out in those three right now. That's terrible. Those three things can be us. Those three things that are me. Oh my word, how many times I do this. The very things they ask for are the stupid things I ask for sometimes. Unpack this. It says, with a king to lead us. How many times do I find myself looking at others to provide leadership for me? Whether it's this author, this writer, this thinker, this politician. And we do that. I do that kind of job. Where I all of a sudden say, well, I want somebody to kind of tell me what I need to think right now and, and what I need to, how, what my perspective on this. I'll look at a website. I'll read a blog. I'll go to everywhere else at times except for the one place I know I need to know, and that's God's Word. We promise to be a light my feet and a lamp to my path. And I look at this going, dude, you guys are screwing this up. I mean, if they could hear their own voices, I, I, I would hope they would go, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds terrible. Like God says he's going to lead them, and they're like, now, we want someone else to lead us. Like, that's never a good thing. Like, this does, it never bodes well for you. Going on, it says this. It says, and to go out before us, which really means to, to judge us, to lead us, to guide us, and then to fight our battles. And anytime you try to put a human person to do that for you, you're in a bad place, man. And they're in a bad place right now. Those three things. Lead us, go before us, and fight our battles. Has that ever turned out well for any nation? Not really. No. It always ends up being chaos. It always ends up being oppression. And it always ends up being difficult. When people are just like, we'll give it, we're going to give up our leadership and let you lead us. And you just kind of take care of things for us. And you go fight our battles for us. It just never turns out well. In our personal lives or in the lives of politics. It just doesn't turn out well. It goes on, when Samuel heard all the people, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, Listen to him and give him a king. I wish with all my heart I could hear God's intonation on that. Don't you wish you could hear it? I wish I could just like, I hope there's DVR in heaven. I want DVR. I do. There's all these moments in, in Scripture I want to watch again. And like, whoa, 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 rewind, rewind, rewind. It's that moment in uh, uh, A Few Good Men. How many times we rewind it when he says, you can't handle the truth? You know, like, whoa, go back, go back, go back. It's just, that's one of those lines that in Scripture, 
Like, there it is, folks. There it is. There's the turning point in the Old Testament. When God says that phrase, listen to him and give him a king. Like, I get goosebumps right now. God, you just, you just gave them what they wanted. Yeah, I did. I did. I want to DVR that moment. I want to look in his eyes. I want to ask him in heaven, like, if we get the moments to ask questions. Like, I want to ask, how did you get the analyst to come in the yard? How, how'd you do that? Like, seriously, how did you pull that off? Well, let me show you. It rewinds the film. Oh, makes sense now. Like, creation. Like, how did you make mountains? And, like, how old was Adam when you, like, formed him? Was he, like, little? Was he, like, 50, 40, 30, 20? How old? Like, how did you decide, like, I'm going to make him this old? Like, like, I want to know that. I want to look at it and go, okay, so explain to me how you get stars and galaxies to form. And like, our telescopes and stuff will take us this far? And he's like, oh yeah, it goes a million times further than that. You just can't see that far. Show me. I want to see it. Like those moments, I want to just walk with God and I want to understand this moment. I want to understand this moment. I want to go, God, what happened to your heart when you said it that day? When you said that line, listen to him. Give him a king. It's not much different for us. It's not much different for me. I think there are moments even today where God comes to us and he says, let me be your king. Let me be the Lord of your life. Let me be the one who will guide your steps. Let me be the one who will listen to your prayers. Let me be the one who will, who will show you what life in me looks like. And we reject and we reject and reject. And he says, okay. If you want a king besides my son, he's always been a gracious God. And if you want to reject him, he will let you do it. But the beautiful thing about God, if you want to reject him, he'll let you. And what happens here is not any different than what happens today. If you want to reject him as king, you can. Today it would be like a church staff wanting to be represented by Yeah, interesting outlook. I'm thinking of an individual specifically rejecting Jesus and saying, I don't want him as my king. And I think he says, no, wait a second. I brought you out of Egypt. I gave you manna and quail. I gave you clothes that wouldn't wear out. I gave you a land that could be your own. I've given you all of this, and you want to turn from all of that. And in that moment, Jesus says, I want to give you forgiveness of sins. I want to give you life everlasting. And you want to reject me as king. Read. And even today, Jesus says, okay. Then you establish your own kingdom. And we'll see how that turns out for you. And when we establish our own kingdom, I can promise you this is true. We find ourselves serving a king, metaphorically, when we run before their chariots. And they take the best of what we have. And when we establish a king outside of Jesus, that king takes and takes. Sometimes it's an addiction. Sometimes it's a hobby. Sometimes it's just a secret sin. And it takes and it takes and it takes and it takes and it takes. And it's never enough. If you want to know if you've got a king besides Jesus, a simple question I would ask in my own life and ask of you is, what gets the best of you? 
What gets the best of you? Just a simple question. What gets the best of me? Because when I have to wrestle with that question, I have to ask, then do I have somebody else on the throne besides Jesus? Like, are my best hours spent in front of a TV? Are my best hours, you know, spent doing things that don't even matter? Is the best of my money spent on frivolous, stupid things like motorhomes? Is the best of what I've got, the best of my time, the best of everything? Because there's going to be a king, and that king will demand the best of what you've got. I think we can measure our money, we can measure our talents, we can measure our time, we can measure our resources, we can measure our days, and quickly start realizing, I might just have a king and didn't realize it. I might have something, like my job, that is not demanding the best of me. And I'm not saying that you don't work for things, I'm not saying you don't put effort, I'm not saying that you don't expend energy, but I think sometimes we do know, like, okay, this has gone beyond that to the point where this addiction or this job or whatever it is, it now owns me much like a king. And the question is, what, what gets the best of me? Is what, I, what I'm wrestling with as I look at this text. What if I looked at God and go, you know what, God, man, thanks for all you've done for me. I appreciate that. But I kind of want a life like everyone else. I kind of want a house like everyone else. I kind of want cars like everyone else. I kind of want, like, 2.5 kids like everyone else. I kind of want, like, clothes like everyone else. I kind of want a life like everyone else. And he's like, no, nah, Jason. I redeemed you so you could be a light to the nations. Don't put a king on that throne. Does that make any sense at all? I'm preaching myself right now, but hopefully you're like, no, I get the connection. Um, let's talk about the result of the rejection. Um, you know, I think that they had every right to be dissatisfied with with the sons of Samuel. Uh, and you're going to find out Solomon's going to put ridiculous taxes on him. He, he's going to kill him with it. Um, you know, there's, there's no doubt that they're going to pay the price of that. Um, you're going to learn that the entire future of Israel's dictated by this one moment. Six different times that word take gets thrown out there. And here's where I think they were right and wrong. I think they were right in being dissatisfied with Samuel's boys. I think they were right in even saying, man, we wonder what our future leadership's going to look like. But like I said earlier, they waited 10 years, David was coming. It was supposed to be Judah and not Benjamin that was going to be their king. Um, this king they're going to appoint comes at the wrong time, with the wrong nature, and the wrong spirit. And, and it, gets, it gets really messy. We've already talked about how we judge that gives and not takes. Um, let's wrap up with this text and kind of landed here. I, I think some things I would want us to look at is Samuel. Let's just talk about him and land it. What do you do when you face rejection? Um, one thing you're going to see is that Samuel's faithful to the end. He doesn't revolt. He doesn't fight him. He does exactly what God says. Uh, I think that success is measured by your relationship with God and not your relationship with men. If Samuel had to measure his relationship with men, the end of his life is he's an old guy that got rejected and put out to pastor, is what it looks like. One of the last things he's going to really get to do is appoint, anoint David as king. You know, there's not a lot more. He's got a couple of things he does, but he's really, he's really getting put out to pastor, and he doesn't fight it. doesn't argue, doesn't cry, doesn't wail. He just trusts God. He says, I'm not going to fight this. I'm going to entrust myself to the judge and judges justly. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to trust myself to the Almighty. I've been talking to him every day since I was a little boy. I'm going to trust him. 
And I think when we get in those situations where we feel like we are being treated unfairly or we feel like we're being rejected, I need to, I say we a lot, I need to be saying more I language here. I need to learn, one, to shut my mouth and go before the Father. And two is, watch my words. You know, and three, realize, man, God, um, if there be a wicked way in me, like David says, reveal it. But if not, God, I'm going I'm to I love what, what Paul says in Romans. As far as it's possible by you, live at peace with all men. And at some point, what Samuel does, he kind of folds his hands and says, all right, this is what you want. You got it. And I think there comes a point for us with other people when they reject us, it's okay to do that. You go, okay, you're rejecting me. You put me out. It is what it is. I'm going to turn to the Father and trust Him. And that's a hard thing to do. Very hard. Um, finally, uh, I think we could end up by looking at a couple more things in chapter 9. We end chapter 9 with, with Saul. And we'll get into him later on. Saul's going to be the new guy. He's the new guy. Uh, he shows up, and at the very, very beginning, he looks rocking awesome. He's out looking for his dad's donkeys. He seems to be humble. He seems to be a, a spirit-filled man. And everything looks right from the beginning. But the whole thing is tainted. And uh, as, you, as you cruise through chapter 9, you can read this later on on your own, um, you find this moment uh, in verse 22. It says, Then Samuel brought Saul and his servant into the hall, seated at the head of the table, this big banquet happens, tells him to eat, and then verse 25 they go to Samuel, they go to a place to talk, um, you know, to Samuel's house to talk. Uh, verse 26, they talk all through the night. They rose about daybreak. Samuel calls them to the roof. He says, get ready. I'm going to send you away. When Saul got ready, he and Samuel went outside together. And as they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to go ahead of us. And he basically embarks on telling Saul the secret. And basically what he does is, he's like Elijah and Elisha. He, he says, man, I'm going to know you with oil. You're the next leader. What a beautiful thing. What a hard thing to do. What a hard thing to do. I always wondered what it was like. I don't know. That, that might be a little too tender for some of you guys. Um, I'll speak for me. It was always weird as a kid when you come from a family of divorce bouncing from different houses. It's a weird thing. Some of you guys grew up in divorced homes you know what I'm talking about. It's just weird. Something I don't ever want my kids to know. You know, it's like five Thanksgiving meals. It's really like, eh, you try to put your best foot, you know, foot forward. Like, you have one at your house with your family, and then you go to this grandma's house, you have one there, and then you got to go to your real dad's house and, you know, have something there. And then you got to go to his parents' house, you have something there. And then later on, you'll have another, something else when you get home. And it's like, it's always that, that awkward, that awkward moment when you got to live in that, that tension. Because... Rejections taking place. I wonder what it's like. Saul is 20 years old. About a 20-year-old man at this point. What's it like for Samuel? And, and Saul plays off like he doesn't even know who Samuel is. Which means that Saul's either a raging idiot or an incompetent leader. One of, one of the two got it true. They live in Benjamin. They're both living right there. This guy's been ruling. He's the guy that's kept you safe and you don't even... You don't even know where to find him or even know who he is? You can read that in chapter 10. I'm like, Saul, are you stupid or incompetent? Which one is it? Like, seriously, you don't know who Samuel is? Are you out of your mind? How do you know who this guy is? And here, it, it's like all of a sudden, if Michael Jordan walks in and some freshman in college basketball player doesn't know who he is, like, excuse me, you don't know Jordan? Are you kidding me? Oh, wow. 
Interesting. Like you, you, you don't know Michael Jordan. That, that's great. Here Saul is about to become the new king. He doesn't really even know who Samuel is. And Samuel's got to put, he's got to anoint him with oil and pass on his leadership. Notice God doesn't give them a choice. He's just give them what they want. And I wonder what that was like in that moment. How hard did it have to be for Samuel? He wakes up in the morning. Saul's looking at him. Saul's packing his stuff up. Samuel walks over, grabs his flask of oil. Very symbolic. Goes for a walk with Saul. Unscrews the lid. Looks down in the bottle. Looks at this 20-year-old kid that's going to screw it all up. And says, here we go. And he anoints him anyway. What a beautiful thing to be that faithful. Even when you don't understand what God is doing. Even when you disagree with it. He does it anyway. I love that about him. I love the authentic leadership in Samuel to say, God, I don't like this. I'm giving up my mantle. Doing something here that I don't even agree with. But you told me to do it, so I will. And he pours it well in Saul's head. And everything changes. It's downhill from here, folks. Straight downhill. Because now we got captivity coming. We got David and Goliath, a beautiful moment. And then you got David and Uriah, a broken moment. You've got Solomon building the temple. And then Solomon, full of wisdom. And then you've got Solomon, the absolute womanizer. You've got the great young boys like Daniel, full, holy, full of the Lord, getting drug off to captivity. You've got them standing in honor before Babylon. And then you've got Israel facing you know, difficult times, trying to rebuild their walls. And over and over and over, you've got prophets turning their backs on God. You've got just the moments we've got from here, it just keeps going downhill until that moment in the book of Mark when it says they're on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And someday, what we know is the king who gave himself with Calvary is also the king who returns. And that king doesn't take, that king gives, he gives a new home, he gives us a new name, a new heaven, a new earth, a new life in him. And he's everything that God had in mind. It's a great book. And it always points to Jesus. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.